Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter number 3. And uh, we're going to continue our series this morning. We've been looking at these letters to the, the seven churches. And just a reminder, especially for those if you haven't been here, uh, these are letters uh, that are spoken from Christ directly to his churches. There were seven churches in, in Asia Minor uh, that were real churches with real situations uh, that he's dealing with. And, and Christ is speaking to address those situations. But what we've seen time and again, and I really think we're going to see it this morning, is that uh, these letters are so applicable to where we are and the way that the things that we deal with in church life even today. And it's been true in the early church. It's been true all throughout church history. These are, these are some of the same tendencies that every church struggles with and some of the pitfalls. And uh, so we're going to look this morning at the church of Laodicea. It begins in verse number 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This morning, we are going to look at this address that is given to this lukewarm church. The very first thing I think that we need to see sometimes is, is just to be reminded, and, and Jesus does this in his introduction in this letter, uh, who it is that is, is speaking to us. You know, words have a certain weight and come with a certain weight or a, a certain uh, lack of weight depending on who speaks them to us, right? We, we may get criticism from one person and uh, you, you forget it as soon as they say it because you, you know, sometimes we even say that, right? Consider the source, consider the source. And we know who they are. We know the kinds of things that they say. And uh, we don't particularly maybe think that they have a lot of wisdom or that they have a good perspective. And so they say something, offer some criticism or say something about us and we just let it roll off our backs. So other people, who speak to us. We, we have a, a lot of respect for who they are. Uh, we have a lot of respect for their character, for their wisdom. And so what, when they say something to us, it comes with a weightiness. And they don't even have to, they, they could say something very, very light, very, something that isn't really a harsh criticism. They don't have to use a lot of words, but because of who they are uh, and the respect and the honor that we have for them, that message to us comes with a certain level of weight. And that's what we see in each of these letters. Jesus is reminding them who it is who is speaking to them. And we get that in the introduction in verse 
14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Uh, he wants this ass- assessment of them to come a- as something that is true and reliable. And so he refers to himself as the faithful and true witness, the, the amen. What, I, what I'm saying to you is true. What, what I'm saying to you, uh, it, it doesn't uh, come from someone uh, who, who is maybe twisting the truth or, or exaggerating a little bit. This is someone who is speaking to us who when he speaks, he speaks truth to us. So consider the source this morning. What we're going to hear about the condition of our church, about the condition that we are in, uh, is something that comes with a weight because it comes from one who speaks truth. What he affirms is true. What he promises or what he threatens is certain. He is the true and faithful witness. But secondly, we also see that he's the source of creation. There in verse 14, again, he says the beginning of God's creation. Now, this doesn't mean, uh, as some might want us to believe, that somehow Jesus was the first one or the first being who was created. He's the first created being. That's not at all what it means. In fact, what it means is that he is he is the source of all creation, that all creation comes from him. He is the he's the beginning of God's creation. He's the source of creation. In other words, Jesus is saying here that he is the creator. We see this in, in Colossians, don't we? Uh, Colossians 1 verse 17 says, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sometimes we might doubt maybe it's somebody's criticism of us because we think, you know, what do they know? Their perspective is limited. They, they know about this much. So they don't know everything that's going on. Uh, they, they don't have the kind of wisdom that I would trust to, to give me an assessment of things that I'm doing wrong or things that I'm doing right. Uh, but when Jesus speaks to us, number one, he's, he's true and faithful. What he says is truth, but he is the one who is the creator of all things. He has the ultimate perspective. So when Jesus speaks to us, we ought to hear, we ought to listen. And that brings up, I think, an interesting question for us this morning is just to consider for each of us, what standard are you using to gauge your life? What standard are you using this morning to get, gauge whether where you are spiritually, where you are with the Lord, whether you're not whether or not you're living as you ought to or not? Well, I think we ought to uh, use the word of God and the word of Christ to be that that gauge for us. And that's what he is offering here. And you notice in verse 15, he says, I know your works. The one who is speaking to us this morning, thirdly, is, is the one who knows us intimately. You know, we can come into church, right? And we can, we can put on a certain show, a certain air that things are a certain way in our life. But, but the one who is speaking to us this morning is, is the one who not only knows what you're doing in your private time when nobody else is there, but he's also the one who knows your heart and your mind. Uh, he knows your thoughts. And he says, I know your works. And so he offers this morning to us a, a bit of a criticism. And, and in this criticism of the church of Laodicea, I think we need to see that of all of these letters that we looked at, perhaps none could be better directed at churches in our day, in our time, in, in the Western world. I think this is, this is a strong indictment of 
Christianity in the West. This is what he says here. Uh, That's what we see, not only the introduction, but secondly, we see the indictment that he gives to them. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. I think we all understand what that means, really. Uh, We want our food and our drinks. We want something hot or cold, right? Uh, if you want coffee, you, you want it hot. You want tea, you want it hot. You, you, you want a Coke, you want ice with it, right? If, if something's lukewarm, if you get coffee that's lukewarm, you, you maybe heat it up or make a fresh, uh, a fresh cup. If you get a Coke and it's lukewarm, if it's room temperature, what do you do? You get ice, right? Most of us don't like lukewarm food or lukewarm drinks. And, and really what that comes to mean then, uh, and, and sort of an analogy, is that a person who is, is lukewarm is a person who's not in a desirable condition. It's someone who is, is half-hearted in their approach. It's someone, uh, the definition of, of lukewarm, someone who's lacking conviction or half-hearted, someone who's not enthusiastic, not having or showing energy or excitement. Not very interested or, or eager. Some of the synonyms that, that are given for lukewarm. Indifferent, half-hearted, apathetic, unenthusiastic, tepid, non-committal, lackadaisical, unenthused, couldn't care less, so-so, uninterested, subdued. Is that, is that descriptive of your pursuit of the Lord. That's what the church here at Laodicea, this is the problem. He's saying you're, you're indifferent, you're subdued, you're, you're lackadaisical in your approach to the Lord, in your pursuit of the things of, of God. This is a statement of their lack of spiritual vigor. Well, where does this attitude come from? What is it that drives them to sort of be half-hearted about their approach to the Lord. Well, he tells us, and we see in verse 17, that it is really their self-sufficiency. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered. And then look at these words, I need nothing. That's what it is that drives this church. And that's what it is that drives us, right? To be lackadaisical, to feel uh, half-hearted about our approach to the Lord because we feel comfortable. We, we feel like we really don't need that much. We, we don't have a great need. And so we're tepid. We're, we're non-committal in our pursuit of the Lord. What is it that leads to this feeling of, of self-sufficiency? And we see in verse 17 again that it's their material prosperity. The fact that they are that they are wealthy, that they have so much. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and therefore I need nothing. This is the indictment that that Jesus gives of this church. Now, this church in Laodicea, we know a few things about them. We we do know that the city of Laodicea of these cities was one of the, the wealthier cities that we've been been looking at. Uh, there were several things that contributed to this. One, they were at a junction between an important road, two important roads, the north-south route and the east-west route. And so it kind of made them an important center uh, for, for uh, the com- commercial goods and, and so on. Also, it was uh, known for uh, its, its uh, importance. It was an important center, rather, of, of ancient medicine. In fact, it was known for an eye salve that was uh, invented and, and distributed all over the Greco-Roman world at that time. In addition to that, they, they produced and exported a, a sort of a rare uh, black wool that would have been in high demand in the ancient world. To, to make expensive clothing and, and rugs. 
from Cicero, we know that it was a, a center of banking. And so this was, a, this was a well-to-do city, and the people in this church were part of this city, and, and they were obviously well-to-do. One, one of the things that really stands out in, in AD 60, that just kind of give you a, a picture of, uh, uh, of their wealth and prosperity, in, in AD 60 there was a, a major earthquake in this area, many of the cities were, were destroyed, but, uh, but when Laodicea went to rebuild the city, Rome provided many of the other cities with the money that they needed to, to rebuild. But, but Laodicea said, we've got it. We've got enough money. We, we, don't, need, uh, we don't need federal aid, right, for, to rebuild our city. We, we have enough resources, enough wealth within our own city. We don't need federal aid. We don't need anything. And so that, that's the kind of mentality, right? We, we even see that in our day, don't we? Uh, you, have you ever tried to help people around here? Uh, most people, say, no, I don't need any help. I don't need any help. That, that's sort of a product of our wealth. We, we have everything. We're, we're comfortable. If we need something, we, we go out and buy it. We don't ask our neighbor to borrow something typically because, well, I'll just buy my own because we've got plenty. We, we don't need anything. That's the, that's the problem with this church. It was wealthy and that wealth, that material prosperity led them to a sort of uh, comfortability uh, and, and that led them to a feeling that I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anything. Now, we might compare this church, uh, the Laodicean church to the church at Smyrna. You remember what Jesus said about this church at Smyrna? They were the church who was being persecuted. And uh, Jesus said of that church, he says, I know your poverty and yet you are rich. And to this church, he says, I know, I know your wealth. I, you, you say I'm, I'm wealthy. I have everything. I don't need anything. And yet he says, yet you are poor. You're pitiable. You are blind. You're, you're wretched. Uh, that's an interesting comparison. And the church at Smyrna was a poor, rich church. The church at Laodicea is the rich, poor church. And what makes this all the worse is, is that they're deceived about this condition. Their material prosperity has deceived them into feeling okay about their spiritual life. Uh, you, you notice this, don't you? In verse, again, in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. They've been, they've been deceived. They don't know and understand. They don't realize. Literally, it says they, they, they do not know. Uh, they're deceived about their spiritual condition. Jesus flips their, their self-assessment upside down. You, you say you're rich, but you're poor. You're so proud of this salve that you have and that you export all over the Greco-Roman world. And yet you really need it. Spiritually speaking, you need that because you are blind. You, you, you're well known for these clothes that you make with this black wool. Uh, and yet you are, you are naked. And this is the principle I think that we're seeing here. Material wealth, material Prosperity. Are you listening this morning? Material wealth has a tendency to blind us to our spiritual need. Material wealth has an innate tendency of making us feel comfortable and blinding us to the reality of our spiritual need. I think this is what Jesus is talking about in, in several locations in the Gospels when he says to watch out and be careful for the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. 
Jesus taught in Matthew 13 that when the gospel is preached, it, it goes out. And often what happens is that the deceitfulness of riches comes and chokes the word. Well, how is it that riches deceive us? There's several ways I, I really think. One, it offers happiness, right? It always, that's what we, the lie that we believe. If I just have enough, then I'll, I'll be happy. Well, that's, that's deception, right? Because we know all kinds of people who are, who are well off materially speaking. They, they have prospered and yet they are involved in drugs and involved in all kinds of things because they've got that money and yet it doesn't provide the happiness that it promises. It's, it's deceptive. Another way that riches deceive us is that they always just tell you, you need a little bit more. You know, if I made this certain level amount of money, then I would be comfortable. Everything would be good. And then you kind of get there. And you're like, well, I know I said that, but now, you know, really the goal, the benchmark is this. But, but you know what happens? It's never enough. You keep making more and you keep getting more and riches deceive you and keep saying there's, there's more to be had. There's more to be had. But this is I think there's a third way that riches deceive us. And I think that's what it's getting at here. And that is that it gives us a false sense of security we mistake the fact that everything is going well and, and that we're prospering on a physical level to assume and, and, and to mean that everything is good spiritually well i'm good spiritually right because i've got the the 3, square foot house i've got the two-car garage and the cars to go in it and and everything's good i've got my health and all of these things and so i'm feeling pretty self-sufficient i'm i'm feeling pretty secure and, and that must mean that everything's okay i, I don't really need anything we, we get to that level of comfort do you do you remember the story the the parable that jesus gave of the rich man in luke chapter 12 i think that's what we see this deceitfulness of riches. I think that's what Jesus is teaching there. In Luke chapter 12, verse 14, uh, it says, and he, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. You see, see what's going on there. You don't need anything. There's a sense of self-sufficiency. I'm good. I've got everything taken care of. I don't need to pursue the Lord. I, I, I don't need to go hard after the Lord because I'm comfortable. I've got everything that I need. There's, there's nothing innately wrong about tearing down smaller barns and building building bigger barns. That's not what Jesus is condemning here. What Jesus is condemning is this attitude of self-sufficiency. I've got everything. I can just sit back and relax. I don't need the Lord. I don't need spiritual things. I don't, I don't need any of that because I've got everything that I need. But God said to him, Jesus continues in this parable, you fool, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's this deception, believing that because everything is good on this level, that everything is good with the Lord. Church, we, we have to see, I think, 
As we read this and we just unpack the meaning of this text, I think we've got to see there could not be a message more targeted for us in our day where we are. We are so comfortable. We are so at ease. We feel so self-sufficient. And it has led the church in the West generally. And I think us here this morning, many of us, myself included, it leads us into a sort of a a, a lethargic, half-hearted, so-so, tepid approach, lukewarm approach to the Lord. We're, we're rich and our wealth has led us to feeling self-sufficient. And that makes us feel unconcerned and lukewarm toward the things of God. It's hard to feel desperate for God and for a heavenly home, isn't it? When you've got a 3,000 square foot home that looks like it came off HDTV, right? It's hard to, to long for a heavenly home and a, 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 when you have that. It's, it's hard to feel the need for a new body when you have your health and when you have the best medicine that's ever existed in the history of the world. It's hard to, to long for that that new body that is promised. It's hard to feel a need for spiritual food when you're still stuffed to the gills from your latest trip to Owensboro. It's hard to feel your need for God when you have rarely ever in your life lacked anything. Right? From the, from the smallest of ages, and we all do it, right? I do it with my own children. We buy them what they want, and they're spoiled, and we're spoiled, and we have so much, and it just leads us to feel, I've got everything. Why do we need God? Why, why do we need spiritual things? I'm, I'm taken care of. I, oh, I don't need help. Thank you. Thanks. I, I, I don't need anything, right? That's our approach to God. And it's rooted in this materialism that we are knee deep in in our country. Well, the third thing that we see then is the instruction. That was the indictment. We see thirdly the instruction in verse 18. He says, I counsel you. I'm going to instruct you what you really need to do. He says, I I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and be truly rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He instructs us to seek for things that are true and eternal value. You see, we're, we're pursuing and we're feeling comfortable uh, with things that aren't lasting. These, these are not true riches. In the eternal perspective, when we, when we get a little bit of perspective and we step back and we have the view of the Creator, the, the beginning of God's creation, the One who is speaking truthfully to us, we get that perspective. We see that these things that we have, these things that that allow us to feel comfortable and at ease and like we don't need anything else. He's saying those really are not true riches. They, they do not last. They don't really have any eternal value. What you need to do then, he's counseling here, he's instructing us here, is seek things that have true value. Seek things that have lasting value. So, so come and purchase from me gold refined by fire. This, this is a pure and true. This is, this is something that has real value. You know, most of our kids, I think, go through that stage where they start to have things. Maybe they got a little bit of money. They start to, they're at school, right? They start to make these trades, right? Is that just my kids? Our kids at their school, they, have, uh, they get gold, you know, for, for being be good or if they do something good they'll get gold i mean they got a little black market going on with all of this gold and it's changing hands and 
And Seth's coming home and telling me, yeah, this, I got this, it was 200 gold. I'm like, my goodness, wow, that's a, that's a lot. But, uh, you, you know, what, what ends up happening, we had to kind of get on Seth a little bit. He, he seemed like maybe he was taking advantage of somebody. He's coming home with all, like he came home with a football. I'm like, that's not your football. Where'd you get it? Oh, I traded somebody. It was like something that wasn't worth that much. And I talked to the dad and he's like, yeah, we had to put a stop on, on Judson. He was, he was trading too much and just giving stuff away and, and, uh, but kids do that, right? And they sometimes, some kids take advantage and sometimes kids are taken advantage of. Uh, and, and that happens, but, but don't we do that? That's, that's what Jesus is saying here that, that we do. We're making a bad trade. We're not seeing what the true value of a thing is. When we live for the material goods of this life and we trade off and we neglect uh, the things that are eternal, the things that are lasting, we're just like little children. Those kids don't have perspective. They don't understand the value of money and, and what things cost. And that's the way we are. But, but our mistake is infinitely worse when we trade the things of this life for the things to come and things of true spiritual value. Come and buy gold for me that is refined by fire. This is what Jesus says, right? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. Don't do that. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. These are lasting treasures. These are true treasures. One of my favorite all-time verses uh, is, is in Matthew 16, 26. And it just is it's something that just hits us so hard. I think if we really stop to think about it, it's where Jesus asks, what will, a pro- what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul. Jesus counsels and says, come this morning and, and purchase things from me that, that are of true value. With that, he also says, not only gold refined by fire, but, but white garments so that you may clothe your nakedness. So if you're like me, maybe I'm telling too much here, but I think I've heard from a lot of people that this is a common dream that you have. I, you show up somewhere and you're inappropriately dressed. Sometimes you're not dressed at all, but sometimes you're just underdressed, right? And, and the embarrassment and the shame that comes from that. I, I have that dream. Typically I'm dressed, so that there's, there's good news there. Uh, but usually I'm showing up to some kind of important event where everybody's wearing a suit and a tie. And I show up and I'm wearing like, like uh, shorts and flip-flops and a, a ratty old t-shirt. And, and it just seems like you know, I guess dreams don't really last that long, but it just seems like it goes on and on. I'm like walking around and, and the whole time in my mind, I'm processing like, where can I go and get clothes? I wonder if I have clothes here that I could change because I just feel so awkward and, and out of place. Right. Uh, this is this is a common fear. And what he's saying here is uh, he's pointing us to something greater. There, there's a day coming when we need to make sure that we've got the right clothes on. We, we need to make sure that we're dressed uh, in righteousness. And, and what an awful thing to think about that we will stand before the Lord and we will not be appropriately dressed. He's not talking about literally about the clothes that we're wearing. He's talking about our, our righteousness. And what he's offering here is, is clothes of righteousness so that when we stand before the Lord, we, we, don't, we won't be naked. We won't be ashamed. He's talking about the promise that we find in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of 
righteousness? What will your garments look like when you stand before the Lord? Have you thought more about what you wear when you go to work and more about what you wear when you go out on Friday night to a restaurant than you thought about what you will be wearing when you stand before the Lord? We need to come to Christ so that he may clothe us in his righteousness. And then he says, thirdly, that he offers them salve so that they can anoint their eyes. And that that has a particular kind of jab toward them because they they had this salve that was exported. And he's saying, look, you're blind and you need to come to me so that you can have spiritual eyesight. You're you're so focused on on these things in this world that they blinded you to the reality of, of what is truly important. And so come to me and I'll give salve so that you can see and you can understand spiritual things. Well, fourthly, this morning, he gives them three inducements. And so we, we've seen these other things and now we see inducements. We know what that word means, right? We, we talk about sometimes they uh, will induce uh, a mother who's expecting. They're, they're doing things to try to get the baby to come. The inducements are things that, that, that uh, entice us, in a sense, to, to come. And he gives three inducements for them uh, to come to him and to seek him. And we see this beginning in verse number 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The first inducement is fear. And that is the threat of of discipline. Now, this is not a fear of an abuser or a fear of someone who wants to bring us harm, but the kind of reverence you have for someone who loves you enough not to allow you to experience or, or to allow you to experience temporary pain in order to spare you from something that is truly harmful and dangerous. It's, it's the kind of fear that we ought to have or, uh, for, for our parents, the kind of respect because we know that they will discipline us. They, they will do something that perhaps brings temporary discomfort or pain so that they can protect us from something that truly is harmful. He threatens to, to discipline them here. What we see about this discipline, first of all, is that it is certain. He says in, in verse 19, those I love, I reprove. This, this is certain. This is, this is something that God does. He, he disciplines His children. The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 uh, and verse 8 that, that every son that He receives, He disciplines. And, and if we are without discipline, if, if God doesn't discipline us when we are in sin, then He's saying you're, you're not sons of God. You're, you're illegitimate. You're not my children if you do not have my discipline. Discipline's a good thing. We have to discipline our children and God disciplines us. And that is what he what he talks about here. Not only is this discipline certain, this discipline is often painful. You know, the way the Lord disciplines us so often is that he removes those comforts that we've come to rely on. Those things that have made us feel self-sufficient, our, our health and our wealth, the, the possessions that we have. Many times the way the Lord disciplines us is to say, look, if you won't come, if you won't respond to my call, if you won't respond to that, then I'm going to be, begin to remove those comforts so that you can see your need, so that you can see the reality of, of where you are. And so he begins to strip those away. And that can be an extremely painful thing to go through. I've been through that in my life in various ways. And it's never a pleasant thing. But the Bible tells us that God's discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's a good thing. 
And that's the third thing that we see about his discipline is that it is loving. It's an act of love. Christ loves you too much to allow you to get comfortable and self-sufficient with the things of this world. And so he brings discipline. It's a loving thing, but fourthly, it's an unnecessary thing, I think, from this passage. Uh, It's something that doesn't have to be. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In other words, what he's saying to them, you need to listen to what what I'm saying. It's kind of like I do as as a parent, right? Boys, straighten up, be quiet, or I'm going to come back there, right? Uh, Discipline is going to happen if, if you don't straighten up. And that's what he's saying here. Look, get this right. Stop trusting in these things. Stop being lukewarm and self-sufficient. Pursue me. Get, get your heart right. If not, I will come in discipline. It's, it's unnecessary. As you hear this morning, you're hearing the word preach. You're hearing an invitation to, to get this right, to repent of this sin in your life. You ought to do that now and spare yourself the discipline of our heavenly father. It's, a, it's an unnecessary thing. Secondly, the second inducement, though, and not only fear, uh, but this is this is a better inducement. I think it's a sweeter one in verse number 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So not only do we have the inducement of fear, but the secondly, we have the inducement of fellowship. Look, there is sweet fellowship to be had with the Lord. If you will get your eyes off of the things of this world, if you will turn off direct TV and Netflix, if you will actually take your phone out of your hand for a minute and turn it off and put it down, there is fellowship to be had with the Lord. If you'll get your eyes off the material things of this world, if you will actually maybe loosen up your schedule a little bit and not cram so many things into your day-to-day and your weekly schedule, there is fellowship to be had with the Lord. And He stands at the door and knocks. He is waiting for you to come and to open the door so that you might have that sweet fellowship with Him. But we are so self-sufficient and we are so focused on the things of this world that Christ is standing there and knocking and we're leaving Him in a sense at the door. Now we know, He's already told us, He won't go on in that condition. If we are His children, He will come and discipline us to get our attention. But for now, He's standing and waiting for you to have fellowship with Him. You cannot experience the fellowship of the Lord if you, if you never put your phone down, you never turn off the TV, you never have a spare moment in your schedule. And listen, that, that fellowship with the Lord is far sweeter, it's far better than the rat race that we are living in. But the third inducement, not only fear, not only fellowship, but the future. We see this in, in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You know, the problem with our evaluation of what is important is that we we constantly forget the transient, temporary nature of the things that we value in this world. First John tells us in first John two, do not love the world or the things in the world, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the desire and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then he says this, and this world is passing away along with its desires. 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In verse 21, we see a promise that if we conquer, if we pursue the Lord, if we walk with the Lord, that we will one day reign with Him. Do you understand that the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that we're building, the kingdoms of the nations of, of this world, they're all passing away. They're not going to be here in 2,000 or 3,000 years from now. They're, they're no longer going to be around. The, the things that we're living for, they're, they're not going to be here. There's going to be a new kingdom and, and a new king. And if you live for him and fellowship with him now and you know him now, one day you will reign with him eternally. I, he says, I will give you to sit on, on my throne as I conquered and sat on my throne. Father's son. It's a promise to rule and reign over the new heaven and new earth. Do you, do you realize this morning that, that we're not going to be little babies in diapers playing harps in heaven, right? God says, Christ says that he's going to, that he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to be living on this earth. And, and he promises here that if we conquer, we will rule and reign with him eternally in this New earth. There's a future to come, so don't get so enamored and fixed on the things of this world. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. As we close this morning, you know, he asked a couple times here, and I think this is an important question. Do, do you hear the voice of the Lord this morning? Are, are you so overcome and so transfixed on the material things of this world that you cannot hear the Lord. But as, as you sit this morning, uh, perhaps you're hearing this word and you're recognizing that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly the way that I'm living. I'm living for the things of this world. I would invite you this morning to open the door to Christ. He says in verse 20, if anyone hears my voice, and in verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear. I hope this morning that you can hear. I know as I studied this and I, I thought about this passage, look, I was convicted because like all of you, it is so easy for us in this, in this culture that we live in to just feel so self-sufficient and like we don't really need the Lord. We don't really need anything because we have everything. But if you hear his voice this morning, turn to Christ and open the door. Pray with me. I pray, Lord that you would do that. I pray that you would show us, Lord.